Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. This week's podcast features a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with artist Diana Weimar of Tiny Pricks Project. Diana is a textile artist who one day in 2018 had the impulse to embroider the words, I am a stable genius, onto an old piece of her grandmother's needlework, and Tiny Pricks was born. Now, Tiny Pricks is a public textile-based protest project with hundreds of participants around the world and 56,000 followers on Instagram. Some of the things Diana and I talk about are the importance of preserving Trump's language and transforming it into something beautiful in protest, the therapeutic benefits of doing this work, learning to stay present with difficult emotions, and the power of community. And now, here's my conversation with Diana Weimar. Diana Weimar, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. I've been following Tiny Pricks for years, and I'm a huge fan, so I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about Tiny Pricks. What is it? Tiny Pricks is a public international textile-based protest project. And that's a lot to sort of spit out. But essentially, if I could give you sort of a visual description, it's your grandmother's doilies with Trump text stitched into it that is then donated to a collection. And when and why did you start Tiny Pricks? When I made my first piece was not exactly when I started Tiny Pricks, because it wasn't unlike some of the other public projects I've done. It wasn't intentional in that way. I was myself at the time struggling with how to process the language coming out of the Trump presidency. And processing language and looking at language and being attentive to language is one of the ways that I process everything. So I hadn't figured it out. I wasn't really following him on Twitter. But when I heard him say around January 2018, I'm a very stable genius, that felt like a segment of language that revealed a lot about what he thought of himself. And then it also revealed how he uses language. And it seemed like something that was stitchable, it was sort of a caption. And so I grabbed a piece of needlepoint that my grandmother or my great-grandmother had done, certainly a piece of needlepoint that no longer had any purpose. And I stitched these words into it while we were driving into from Princeton to New York and my husband was driving. So I had a period of time. I took the words, I put them on a textile that felt sort of ironic and interesting It was sort of a blurting out. And I posted a picture of it because that was the second translation. Went from Twitter to Needlepoint to Instagram. And that's the journey of the pieces. And that's a really important journey to spit that language back out again. And so I posted it. People responded to it. That time I had 500 followers, but still 30 people liked it and I could see it. And so it became Tiny Pricks when I decided that I was going to make more and I was going to try to capture his language on a daily or weekly basis because I was convinced that he would become more presidential as his presidency progressed, but yet he would still be exactly who he was and his language, that he would occasionally say things that were ridiculous and and harmful and destructive. And I would capture those. And at the end of four years, I would have a small show of needlepoint embroidery pieces. Now we all know that he never changed and he will never change. And that it's 
extremely important that we, though there's so much coming at us, we try to remember the words that are said now because they're going to impact how we move forward. So yes, part of Tenny Pricks, as you mentioned, is immersing yourself in Trump's language, which is something I personally try to avoid at all costs. For me, it feels like a very dark place to go. I mean, how is that process for you? So I am in the dark place. It is a dark place to go. I agree with you. <laughs> Some friends have suggested I could eventually donate my body to science. If you <laughs> reelected to see what a woman's body looks like when they stitch Trump language. <laughs> have I developed some different kind of, <laughs> so my blood changed out as my heartbeat. I will tell you that in that darkness is the place where we can move forward. And for me, now you have amazing guests in your podcast, and they've all found ways to recenter themselves. This is a recentering in that dark spot with the language of this challenging and making something beautiful and public and in protest. And that process takes you out of that darkness. And once you feel comfortable in that darkness, in that world, you can do this again and again and again. And it's a skill. It's something that we do with different things that are difficult. And so I'm just choosing to stay in that spot so that I can, and the people that participate in the project can record this language. It is a material record. And without being in that dark place, that record, I'm afraid, will disappear. We should move through it, past it, and transform ourselves because he's our president. He was elected. <laughs> it's hard to say, but he's our president. He's not some random person. And this is why it's important, I think. That's actually a very spiritual idea of sort of processing, moving through it, facing it, and letting it pass through, which is stands in stark contrast to everything that Trump stands for and says, which brings up the question of the medium you use, embroidery, which I think of as something very decorative and traditional and domestic. It's sweet. It's homespun. It, it has the feel of the hand, the actual hand. And that contrasts starkly with Trump's vulgar and hate-filled speech. What effect do you hope that these pieces have on people when they see them? So there are two pieces to that. There's the effect that it has on people when they make them, and there's the effect that it has on people when they see it. And I think because, as you were just referencing the hand, in the kind of work that I'm doing and the participants are doing, the hand is still visible. So I actually don't think of myself as an embroidery artist. I think of myself as a textile artist and I stitch and I not embroider. I don't have really strong embroidery skills. I have stitching skills. I am translating words into something sculptural. And that's how I really think about it. I'm not looking for the decorative and beautiful, though those things when done are just breathtaking and they're pieces that come in and, and we all wonder, how did they do that? I don't have those skills, and that's not where my strength lies. But what I'm really looking at is how can I make these words with thread, with textile, and you will then see that I've made them, and you will think differently about them because you know that I've made them. Now, I can send you a text. I can DM you some words. You don't think of me as making them. They're not personally connected to me. So what is so important about this medium is that we're constantly reminded of the person. 
We're reminded of the history of the textile. We look at the wear and tear on it. These are usually vintage textiles. We wonder where the textile came from. We think about the maker of the original textile, and then we think about the maker of the piece. So there's so many ways in which this textile works with, and the thread is weaving in and out of it. So it's this wonderful combination of something that is pre-existing and has always existed and something that has been new and translated and imported onto it. There's a great tension there. Definitely. Probably what drew me to Tiny Pricks to begin with, you're scrolling through Instagram and you just, you have to stop. It makes you stop and look and think for a moment because it is so arresting to see the words in this format. I mean, what kind of feedback do you get from people about that? Not necessarily the people who are part of your community stitching, but the people who are just appreciating it or reading it like me. I think a lot of people who aren't used to seeing this medium, and you're really not used to seeing it on Instagram. Ironically, we're more used to seeing it now because of masks. We know masks are made, but generally we're not seeing things that are made in this way. And I think it really, it's a double take. It gets their attention. It's a surprise. And in that surprise, just for a moment, the finger slows down. And when the fingers slow down, when the scrolling, when we stop tapping and liking, if it just can slow people down slightly, they can be more present with the piece. And it holds back to us a mirror and a nostalgia for a time when people made things, when you knew your friend's handwriting. I have good friends now, and I don't think I've ever seen their handwritten signature. I don't know if they've ever sent me a letter. Why do we make cards? Why do we bake for people? Why do we make things for people? That's at the heart of this. So one of the things about Tiny Pricks is when you see that piece, it is unexpected to see that quote in thread and on textile, but you also feel that tiny prick of love, if you will, because it reminds you that we make things for each other. We've always made things for each other. That's how we hold each other in place and how we express our affection. So whether it's conscious or not, when anybody sees these pieces, I think they think about a time when they felt loved. I think you can help but feel that. I hope. The other part of it is the absurdity. For me, like I said, I try to avoid his speech. I turn off the TV when he comes on because I can't bear it. But there's no escaping it. When I see your pieces, it brings it back to me, like you said, in a format of kind of holding my hand and it's like, it's okay. <laughs> I will walk you through this. You will read this and you will be okay. And you will see how insanely absurd it is that this is our president uttering these words. It takes a lot of energy to avoid things. So really the trick with the project is to be present. I think people feel all different degrees of emotion. I feel a lot less than I used to feel because I can't afford to dole out my <laughs> my emotions and my feelings in that way, or I'd be exhausted. And also because in, in terms of a scale, I'm really on the balance of love and generosity and community and activism and protest, protest, protest. I mean, Tiny Pricks has been protesting. I mean, the tagline is desperate times, creative measures before the pandemic, before we really started to address, I hope we're really addressing issues of racism and social justice. Before that, Tiny Pricks was trying to address every single thing that was coming out of this presidency that was so offensive and against everything that we believe. So I think that, I mean, you're doing this podcast and you're doing this work, so you're obviously not avoiding it, really. You're working around it in a different way. And we need all these different layers. 
And art is a reflection. This is an artistic practice and political art is meant to sort of grab you by the back of your shirt, hold you in this place for a moment and say, what do you see? How long can you look at this? And then run away, then go forward, do what you're going to do. But for a moment, it holds us in this place so that we know where we're leaving from and that will help us know where we're going to. Gosh, I think I might cry soon. (laughs) I'm having my own personal catharsis. So you've touched on this a little bit, the therapeutic nature of creating one of these pieces. And you've also touched on your community that is doing it along with you now. Can you talk a little bit about either your process of having to work with these words and translate them into something beautiful? Your process, your fellow prickers processes, what people tell you, what emotions arise, what's the experience and how do you feel afterwards? So my resistance to the language has been really worn down by these tiny pricks. There's both the I'm being pricked and then this project is about me pricking into these pieces. But my sort of resistance has been worn down. So I go right into the quote. I go right into the fire. I'm looking. I'm seeking every day. I'm looking for the words that I think need to be recorded that day. For a lot of people who are participating, the first challenge is getting over the language and feeling that they have enough energy to make a piece. And so energy comes from different places. Sometimes we have a lot of energy when we feel great. Sometimes we have a lot of energy when we feel bad. And so a lot of people are in the former category. And so what do you do with that frustration and where do you go with it? And that's where the therapy part of it is, is that you are working through a real resistance that you have and a real reluctance. I read a few marathons and people would always say, well, the hardest point is just to get to the starting line. And so this is just getting to the starting line. Tiny Pricks is a way to activate yourself by doing this one small thing. And it's a task that you can complete. And it's so important to feel that we are completing things because a lot of things feel incomplete and endless. So it's a small thing that you make, you can produce this product. And then the second part of it is the sharing, is the community that comes out of it. Because what you're doing is you're giving it you're releasing it and you're releasing it to a community where it's going to be part of a collection. And that's also a therapeutic experience. And especially during this pandemic, an experience that was really taken away from us to the extent that we didn't realize how much we'd come to depend and how much we'd taken for granted the ability to meet a friend at a coffee shop, to go outside of our homes, to go to school, to go to work. I mean, in a sense, the project was a way to travel when you couldn't travel anymore, a way to protest. It's been a march. It's been a protest since the beginning. So if some part of you can address this language and make a piece, you have the cathartic process of making it, and then there's the release. And that's a gift, because a lot of things that are difficult and challenging for us, we can't release. We have to work through them, we have to sit with them, and we try to get somewhere through them. But this is something where you can actually send out this piece that you're made. So that's what I hear most of all from people, is that they're so excited they finished it. They did it. They got through it. And it's going somewhere, not bigger and better, but it's going somewhere where it will be seen and where it'll be important. And honored. And honored. And so in that sense, they are being witnessed for the work that they've done. And we're not always appreciated for the work that we do. And that's something that we really crave, I think, and we're yearning for is to be appreciated, to be seen, and to have comfort in the collective. I clearly need to make my own tiny prick because I have a lot of things I need to process. You might become a repeat offender. There are people who've made, they lap me. I mean, they're amazing. There are people who really resisted and then they end up making 20 or 30. 
it's a practice if you embrace it, if it works for you. It's not for everyone, obviously. So you're a textile artist. Let's talk about the actual textiles you use, the fabrics you use. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I sort of backed into this kind of textile because my maternal grandparents had both passed away and they had collected, as some families do, textiles that have been their family for generations. And my mother's of the generation that doesn't want to keep all those things. And my teenage daughters are like, no, we don't want those things. Old faded christening gowns, bonnets, really uncomfortable, itchy little baby wool sweaters. I mean, you could go on and on. But also doll clothing that had been made by my great-grandmother for my mother. And so on one hand, these textiles are memory textiles. They're inherited textiles. But they've also lost a lot of memory. They've lost a lot of their importance. And the next stop would be a thrift store. Or We all know. We all have this issue. But I wanted to stop them, reappropriate them. And some people will say violate them. Some people will say to me, I can't believe you stitched that into this object. That's upsetting for some people about the project is these beautiful textiles have these awful words stitched into them. And they think, isn't that difficult? And I think, yes, that is difficult because this is a difficult time. And I occasionally will stitch, will do positive pieces as well for the project. But if I were only doing Obama quotes, I don't think you would be talking to me right now. I think you're talking to me because... This textile is so important to us and it does so much work for us that though you and I may not know each other, when you see these textiles, you know that they are connected to me and we find common connections through these textiles. So I'm using this medium because it does a lot of the work for us. It has stories built into it. It has ways in which it triggers memories. It evokes different feelings and that's all extremely important and works to bring social media, to remind us of our history, to give us something that is really almost tactile, even on social media. And I think there's a warmth to that. There's an importance to that. And there's a nostalgia to that. And we are nostalgic right now. We're afflicted with nostalgia, whether or not we acknowledge it. It's almost painful to watch Obama speak or think back to a time before this presidency when there were, again, a lot of things that we took for granted about the way people communicate and speak and treat each other. I mean, things have been seriously degraded. You wonder if and how they can ever go back. But I have a lot of faith in the human spirit, so I think we'll get there. And what are some of your favorite pieces, either that you've made or that your fellow contributors have made? Any examples that you can tell me about? I don't have favorite pieces because I love them all. I have four children. I don't have a favorite child. That's an impossible question when people ask you who's your favorite child. But I do have my favorite part of it, the favorite thing I like is when a piece has brought the participant has three elements to it, the textile, the quote, and then this creative urge, impulse, vision. And so an example I can share with you is a participant took a Donald Trump quote when he said, Donald Trump is the best thing that's ever happened to Puerto Rico. And she stitched it into a square from a roll of paper towel. And the reason I remember that, and it doesn't mean it's my favorite, but the memory there and and the visual is because that medium really reflected the quote and it was unexpected and it took a creative impulse 
and vision. And I think every single piece has that vision because you're making it, whether it's the first time you've made a piece. And a lot of the pieces that are made by participants who have never used this medium before reflect their exploration and sometimes struggle with the medium. And that reflects our struggles with what is happening right now. So it always, that's why there is no favorite because it is always a success if it's finished because you see the journey, you see the process. And that's what so much of this project is about. How did you come up with the name? You've mentioned a little bit before the tiny pricks of the needles, but is that what it's about? It's really about your conscience. These pieces are meant to prick our conscience. It's meant to make us think about where we are and who we are. So it has a lot of different meanings. <laughs> and I've been asked about the title a lot, and some people are upset about it. And sometimes there's a little bit of confusion about what this show is. And sometimes there's a lot of playful teasing, as you can imagine. But ironically, the teasing part is the part that, to me, is sort of in the background. The really important part of it is the word tiny and the word prick separately. And the prick I'm referring to is the making, the mending, the stabbing, the needle, the action of the needle. And the tiny part is the accumulation. So when we think of the accumulation of something, there's power in the multiples. So, and it has to be this tiny, it's a tiny buildup. What's happening right now are all these words are tiny words, but when you pile them all up, we are ending up with a mountain of material that is defining our current political discourse. But Tiny Pricks is really meant to, it's sharp, it's meant to reference that act, that little jab of pain, that numbness, that the repetition, and then this tininess, because each piece is tiny and each person by themselves are tiny. But when you build this all up, you have something much more enormous. And that whole concept of community, having all these people doing this together is taking place in so many different realms right now as people are standing up. Even if it's you have a fundraiser and everyone donates $5 towards a candidate, if you have 100 people do that, well, then that can become meaningful. And I love that communal aspect of what you're doing. So you've talked about it a little bit, but who are they? How did this group come about and where do they come from? So participants... I don't know who they are. I know them through this medium and we know each other, I think, in this certain way. We know each other's work and participation, but people come from everywhere. It began as sort of word of mouth and then it becomes the sort of equivalent of word of mouth on Instagram. It's often a friend will tell a friend you should do this. So many people said, well, someone sent me a link to the New York article and they said, you should do this. And so part of where this community comes from is that people sense that someone else is struggling. So it's a way of offering a helping hand. So the community has formed around, I don't think we'd be doing this project again if Hillary Clinton had been elected. I think certain people would, maybe a different group would have done this project, but it comes from, the community comes from people who want to be politically active. That's the one thing, whether they never have been before or they always have been, that's the first thing to notice is that it is a political act. And so it is like a fundraiser where people are giving, they're giving $5, they're just coming. And when I listened to your wonderful interview with Stacey Kramer, I could really relate to a lot of the things that she was talking about. How do you make it interesting? How do you make it fun? How do you get everyone involved? Because just that involvement is the beginning of becoming politically active and facilitating change. That's got to be really humbling if a total stranger sends you this thing that maybe is their child's like baby blanket or something. And 
stitched with something that really came from their heart that you knew is a deeply emotional process for them and then trusting you to care for it. I can only imagine how that has got to feel. It's why I do this and how I get through this and plus some. I'm coming out ahead. <laughs> it's a difficult it is to live in Trump's world and sometimes I have moments where I think this is really insane. Why am I doing this? Why would anyone do this? But you're absolutely right. There are stories of the textiles that are very sad. There are people who have lost children, have lost loved ones, and have used their textiles for their pieces. So if someone can make a piece, I'm going to be there to receive it and to take care of it and to get it out there to be the best ambassador that I can be for that piece. Because I think that that's important and that they not only deserve that, but that is what I would want someone to do for me or for a loved one of mine. So it's a way of really, you know, as Ram Dass says, we're all walking each other home. This is a way of walking together. I'm amazed by every piece I get. I'm amazed that somebody will make something and put it in the mail. I'm amazed they'll go to the post office. I'm amazed they'll pay up to $40 to mail it, depending on how big it is and whether or not they ship it to Canada or the US. And then I'm amazed by people who follow the project because that's important too. You don't have to make a piece to participate. If you're following the project and you're looking at it and you're liking it, then you're participating. Because without those people, I don't know that there would be the same purpose to it. So it's not just the mailing in, it's not just the making of the piece, it's just being present long enough to see what's happening. So on this social media topic, I mean, it feels to me like this is a very postmodern interpretation of this craft work. I mean, not only with content and themes, but also in terms of the display. I mean, instead of having it hanging on a wall or stitched on a pillow, it's showing up in your Instagram feed. So social media plays this crucial role. The quote is born in this cold Twitterverse by this sort of demonic presence. And then you take it, you create something, you transform it into a textile, you imbue it with warmth and love, and then it goes back into social media. And so it's sort of like you need social media on both ends to have it be meaningful. I know you've had some in-person exhibitions, but your reach is massive on social media. You had like, I think, 56,000 followers when I checked. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but how social media has made this possible? It has. There isn't somebody you can sort of thank for Instagram, but I'm very clear because a lot of people of my generation like to brag about being off social media or not. Somehow it feels like, oh, it's taking over our lives. It's what is it? Is it good? Is it bad? Tiny Pricks would not exist without Instagram. That is so clear to me because especially with the pandemic, I didn't have to scramble to create online material because I had a collection. It has existed there. It's so fluid. It allows it to travel. It allows participants from South Africa to Australia to New Zealand. I just started working with a group in Brazil. There's a chapter in the UK. That does not exist. I, as a woman as a mother of four, as a physical being, could not be in all those places. There isn't the funding in the arts. There isn't the ability to reach people in this way. So what an amazing, incredible thing that people can find this project almost anywhere. And that has worked so well for Tiny Pricks because we're still going back to the personal because of the medium and because of the material. And there's still the handmade. So there's the swiping and there's Instagram and there are these things that make us feel like are we getting closer to ourselves or are we getting further away from ourselves? Are we more connected to people or less connected? And I think because I like to stay in this medium, 
I can constantly feel that I'm still have my feet on the ground. I'm still working with my hands. We're still really connecting with each other. And you're absolutely right. It goes back and forth. It goes from Twitter. It goes to textile. And it is amazing to see the physical collection. So it's going to be at the Beacon Gallery in Boston this summer. It's going to be at Culture House in Washington, D.C. in the fall, four blocks from the Capitol. It'll be at Plant House Gallery in New York. And I would send it everywhere if I could. But the point is, when you go and see it in person, it's a different feeling, too, because you become smaller and it becomes bigger. You can't see the scale on Instagram. Someone came into the exhibit after seeing a piece on Instagram. And they said, I had no idea how big it was. I had no idea how big it was. They said, is it really tiny? Is it a huge piece that took someone? There's a piece that sent in recently that took the participant eight months to make. And in eight months, and then she sent it to me and gave it to me. So how can you not revel in the joy and love of that? But the point is, when you see it in person, it does reach you in a different way. So ideally, you would see it on Instagram and you would see it in person. Then you can really see the details. You can really see the fabric, the three-dimensional sculptural aspect of it comes alive. And it's a weird, uncomfortable feeling of being almost inside Twitter. It's like a sculptural labyrinth of being inside these pieces when it's exhibited because they usually go from floor to ceiling. And it's like walking through the Vietnam Memorial where you are going past a space and you realize as you are moving through it, it is moving you because you're being drawn along by the repetition And there's a moment where you're overwhelmed with emotion because there's so many, there's so many pieces and there's so many names and we lose that scale when we're seeing on Instagram or Twitter. So they go hand in hand. And you talked a little bit about women. It sounds like a lot of your contributors are women. And of course, this is a medium that traditionally symbolized women's work and domesticity. And when you take it and combine it with these quotes reeking of toxic masculinity and other vileness, what comments are you making on women or feminism there? Well, it's still subversive, but it's not very silent. So I think the first thing that we're thinking about is that traditional image, which is represented so much of the woman sort of silently bent over her needlepoint. But I also sort of wonder, because my grandmother did a lot of needlepoint, what was she thinking during that time? <laughs> was she thinking subversive thoughts? And how were these things being made? It's really important for us to value this work. And I think for women's work to be valued, for domestic work to be valued. And this is a way of valuing it. It's a way of seeing its resilience and strength. So you can make a piece anywhere. You can do it with the materials at hand. And we've seen a lot of people figuring out what materials they have at hand when our worlds are reduced and we're sheltering in place. And I think women have always done this. They've always worked within this range of what they can reach and what is around them. And at the same time, they've always worked to preserve memory and tradition and care and the family scrapbook. And I'm generalizing here, but I'm talking about the keepers of the memory and the keepers of the objects and the keepers of this space. And in a sense, Tiny Pricks, it is another space. This project is another space that you can enter and it reflects where we were and where we are and where we're going to go as women. And if someone wants to start stitching, wants to join the group, what do they do? It depends on where you start. There are two different starting points. One is the language, a quote. So you might hear something and you just think, that is making my head explode. I have to deal with that. I have to go and I have to do something. That's the quote. Some people wait months to find a quote and then there's something that just is so important. It just, it pricks them. 
it touches on an issue that impacts their family or someone they love, and they go dive right in. Other people start with the textile, and so they have some object. They don't know what to do with it. They don't want to throw it out. They don't want to keep it necessarily. It's hidden. It's not being seen. And they want to make something with it. And then they go looking for a quote. So those are the two entry points. But the minute you start thinking about it, you're working to overcome any resistance that you might have to the process or to the medium. And a lot of people historically have either loved this medium or it's been something they've hated. They've been made to learn it, especially participants of a different generation. It was something that they had to learn in school or something that they didn't do well at. It was something they were judged by. (laughs) They felt like, I can't do this. I don't have the patience for it. I don't have the skill. It's felt sometimes like a sort of gotcha medium where you're supposed to do it this perfect way. And I have often done workshops with people who have really have to overcome that and address their own instincts toward perfection and to realize that this is a political act. It's not like you're throwing a dinner party where everything you think should be perfect is perfect. It's not like that. This is a messy place to be in. And sometimes the messier your piece is, the more personal it is. So the entry point really, Nancy, is just who are you and what is your headspace and which element is going to pull you in? And then how you're going to express what you want to say. And that's a very kind of, there are also steps on the website (laughs) that walk you through the project. But that's the psychological mind state that you go through. Often for people, it's a tipping point. They just have to participate. They want to do it. They meant to do it. And they're going to do it. I'm feeling it, Diana. I've got it. (laughs) So just to sum up, I'd love to find out what for you has been most rewarding about this journey, about this project. I think it's moments like this where you can connect with someone you don't know. I think that's unbelievably rewarding. And it's always a mystery to me what brings people together, how you and I find each other. And this has brought so many people into my life in just these very small ways, but they've each given me a gift. And I work very hard. I work every day on this, but this is still a gift that's being given to me. And I don't know if that's rewarding, but I am being rewarded constantly with the trust and the shit that people have placed in me to facilitate their expression of their political beliefs. And that is a huge gift. And that's a huge responsibility because I think it is often the core of who we are and what we hope for the future and what we believe and how we imagine ourselves living together on this planet. And so that's extremely rewarding. It's an honor. Diana Weimar, I really can't thank you enough. This has been so inspiring for me. I hope people will follow you on Instagram and start sending you stuff who are listening to this. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the project evolves, what happens cross fingers post-Trump very soon, and just seeing where you go as well in your career as an artist. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to talk about it. And it's a nice balance to making the pieces. This is going to be a new world in November, Nancy. We have no idea. And what I do have faith in is that this project will know how to adapt because the people who are involved and follow it and participate will show us the way. Well, I can't wait. Thank Thank you, you. Diana. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs>